so glad to be here. I'm so honored to be here today. It is a beautiful day here in the desert. I hope it's beautiful where you are. Um, it is just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. It's April the 17th, 2021. And we are talking about working with others. And one of the things that is very notable in the big book is the big book, most of it is written in the declarative rather than the imperative. Don't worry, I'm going to explain that. See, Dr. Howard was a psychiatrist in New Jersey. And when Bill released some of the mimeographed copies of the big book prior to having the actual book printed, Dr. Howard got a copy of it. And he went to Bill and he asked Bill to make some changes in the book. And what he said to Bill was, a book that's in the imperative is not gonna be as effective as the declarative. The imperative is you do this and you do that and you say this and you say that. Well, Bill didn't wanna make these changes. He was very reluctant to do the work and he didn't, he felt like he wanted to write the book and everybody accept the book and he didn't wanna do the changes. But Dr. Howard implored him. But one of the chapters or the chapter uh, there is some, there is some of this in, in to wives. There is some of this in the family afterward, as well as to employers, but by and large, he changed it except for this chapter. This chapter is still in the imperative. You do this, you do that. You say this and you say that. And a couple of the things I want to talk about before we get into the meat and potatoes of the actual, of the actual, uh, text, the actual chapter is that the word sponsor very notably is not in the book because the word sponsor had a different connotation. The book was written in 37 and 38, primarily in 38. Some of it was written in 37, very little of it. It was pretty much the summer of 38, the winter of 38, and up until April the 10th, 1939, when the book was actually printed. And then for the second printing, they added Appendix 2 and they changed Step 12. And when they changed Step 12, what they changed it from was having had a spiritual experience they changed it to having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So they changed the 12th step and they added appendix two. But I'm getting off the subject here. The word sponsor does not appear because the word sponsor had a different connotation back in the 1930s than it does today. You see, the stigma of alcoholism in those days was a much more serious stigma than it is today. In those days, people didn't move around as much. People were very, very afraid of being labeled an alcoholic. If you remember in Dr. Bob's story, Dr. Bob's nightmare, and as we learned the history of Dr. Bob, he did not wanna do step nine. And the reason he didn't want to do step nine is because he didn't want to go around making amends because in his mind, then everybody would know that he was an alcoholic. Well, the one thing that Dr. Bob wasn't in touch with was everybody in Akron that knew him knew he was an alcoholic. The only one that hadn't accepted the fact that he was an alcoholic was Dr. Bob himself, but everyone else knew. But the word sponsor in those those days meant simply this, that when you came to an AA meeting, not so much the Oxford group, because the AAs had no real um, problem with anybody coming to an Oxford group meeting. It wasn't their meeting. It was an Oxford group meeting. But in 37, when the New York group started to split from the Oxford group, and in 39, when the Akron groups started splitting away from the Oxford group, the stigma became very different because once it was a meeting of strictly alcoholics, 
They were afraid that if you came into the meeting and you were a member of the press, or you were just a member of the community, or you were just a curiosity seeker, and you weren't steeped in anonymity, and anonymity is, is, is a big factor here because of this, you would go snitch to the guy's employer, you would go snitch to the guy's wife, you would snitch to the banker considering loaning him money for a mortgage or what have you, that the guy was in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and that would hurt the person personally and hurt the person professionally. So that the stigma was much more serious in those days than it is today. So the word sponsor in those days meant simply this, somebody who could vouch for you, somebody who could corroborate for, for you that you were indeed someone that was having a problem with drinking. Notice that I didn't say that they could corroborate to you that you were an alcoholic because I wanna steer clear of this fact this is a self-diagnosing disease. The only person that can tell me that I am a compulsive overeater, even though the evidence is overwhelming, even though the evidence is insurmountable, the only one that can decide if I am a compulsive overeater is me. It is a self-diagnosing disease. But to be seen coming in or out of an AA meeting or to be seen in the AA meeting was a very frightening thought for many of these guys that came in in the early, early days because the stigma was very different. As we started to evolve, Clarence Snyder, was a member in the Akron group. And he wrote a story in the first edition of the big book called Home Brewmeister. Clarence Snyder, after, ninth, after April of 39, took this book. And what he did is he pioneered modern sponsorship. Clarence Snyder is worth studying. And if you're looking for a podcast to listen to, you can go on silkworth.net or you can go on AA speakers, whatever that is. Just I just Google AA speakers. I don't know the exact website, but I just Google AA speakers. He's really worth listening to. He didn't get along with Bill Wilson at all. Bill Wilson and him were, were like, like Jimmy Burwell. Jimmy Burwell didn't get along well with Bill either, but then they grew to love each other. But Clarence was not a big Bill Wilson fan. He thought that Bill was a bit of a hypocrite because here's Bill running around uh, preaching to people that it's a program of attraction, not promotion. And he said, nobody promoted the damn thing more than Bill Wilson. So he, and, and they had other, many, many more issues too. But Clarence Snyder is worth a look. He also wrote a book um, and I'm getting old and I, this is, these are the steps we took. He also wrote a book, I'm getting old, but thank God I'm not that old yet, okay. But he, what he did is he brought the book out to new people and he would change the sentences into questions. He, just to give you an example, I just picked this at random. It says, most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. And he would read the sentence and then he would say to the, to the, the pigeon, now why did they call him a pigeon in those days? Well, most of us are too young to remember carrier pigeons. Carrier pigeons would carry a message and they would strap the message to their foot and they would use them in wartime and they would put messages in code. Well, the reason Dr. Bob called new people pigeons is they carried a message hopefully, but they crapped all over until they did. So he would call the new people pigeons. So he would say, well, like I just read you this, most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. He would change that into a question and he would say to the pigeon, do you think you need look any further for utopia? 
Here is a, a way out of your alcoholism. Here is a way of relieving your urge to drink liquor so that you can reassemble your family, get your job back. Remember, these were at the beginning, these were real low bottom dudes. I mean, except for Marty Mann, who was really low bottom, and Irma Lavoni and 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 Lil and some of the women that came in. Uh, these were low bottom dudes, you know, so he would say, or any, you take any sentence and he would change it into a question. And this is the way he conveyed the message of the big book. I've got a backache today that I wouldn't wish on anybody except Hitler. But anyway, this is the way he would convey the message of the big book to the new person. And he's really the father of modern day sponsorship is Clarence Snyder. And Clarence Snyder's uh, one who a lot of people don't talk about, but I wanna talk about him. And I'm actually gonna talk about him more as the chapter goes on. Maybe not today so much, but I'm gonna talk about Clarence Snyder a bit more as we get into the chapter, because I want you to have a little bit more of a background on who he was and the legacy that he left us is modern day sponsorship, quite a legacy. See, we assume that it can came from Bill. We assume that it came from Bob. And, and no, there are many, many players in this, in this tapestry. There are many, many people that are involved in this that were neither Bill nor Bob. And Clarence is one of those people. So note that name, Clarence Snyder, and you'll be doing yourself a big favor. Okay, let's go to page 90. And we've been talking about sponsorship. And you know, a lot of people, get, they get scared at the prospect of sponsorship. And one of the reasons that they get so scared is because we seem to have a penchant for perfectionism. We wanna be the perfect sponsor. And if we can't be the perfect sponsor, then we don't wanna sponsor at all. We often get wrapped up in results Remember always, boys and girls, we are not in the results business. The only entity here that is in the results business is our higher power. The only entity that is concerned with results is God. All we can do is shine the light. And some of us, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. It's very, very simple. Let the big book do the talking. Let the big book do the, the, the job of what it was designed to do as a basic text. And you say, well, I'm not much of a teacher. I don't know how to explain things to people. Did you ever tell anyone your phone number? Did you ever give anybody your email address? Did you ever give anybody directions to your house? That's a form of teaching. What is teaching? Teaching is imparting knowledge from the teacher to the student. That's what it is. Did you ever tell anybody how to get to your house from where they were? That's teaching. So you can do it. And if you don't do it, you're in trouble. Why? This is a 12-step program, not an 11-step program. And as my friend in New Jersey loves to say, I know that some of us are afraid to sponsor. Be more afraid of not sponsoring because if you don't sponsor and you don't get out of yourself, <clears throat> you're not going to recover. It's not going to happen. And yes, I, I'm all in favor of lots of different kinds of service. Somebody has to be the secretary of the meeting. Somebody has to be the chair of the inner group. Somebody has to be the, the speaker getter, the speaker seeker. Somebody, there's all kinds of jobs that need doing. And I'm not gonna diminish for a minute what Maria and Nancy and, and Karen and Sue and, and Pam and the rest do to bring this thing that we're at now to life. I'm not gonna diminish that for a second. No, 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 no. But if they just did that and did not sponsor, they would not recover. So with that in mind, now remember, it's a 12 step program. All you can do is the best you can. 
and I'm going to say this a lot during this chapter. I have a 100% recovery rate when I sponsor. They don't recover at 100%, not even close. There are many, many people that I have sponsored that right now are probably knee deep in ice cream, knee deep in donuts, knee deep in God knows what. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not eating. I'm not in the food. I'm in recovery for today. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but for today, I am in recovery. Let's go to page 90. Sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Normally, you're not going to be faced with this. Normally, you're not going to be around the guy or the gal when they're with their family. You may hear about the family. You may get certain snippets about the family. And especially now as we move into what I like to call now the Zoom era of OA, it's unlikely that you live anywhere near that person and their family today. But for the sake of this conversation, for many, many years, my sponsors and I lived in the same general area. We lived either in the Chicago area. I had a sponsor when I lived in Eugene, Oregon. I have a sponsor now. My sponsor now lives in West Los Angeles, California. We don't even live in the same state. So it's very unlikely that you're going to run into a person um, with their family. It's just not likely. But no matter what the situation, what is the book telling you here? There is a very difficult thing in dealing with a person who's full of the food or who's jonesing for the food. You've got to know when to sort of know when to strike that iron. You have to know when to you have to know when to hold them, know when to fold them and when to walk away, right? To coin the coin the lyrics of that song. Know when to hold them, know when to fold them, and when to walk away. How do I know when it is time to walk away when the person is just not listening? They're at a meeting and they're crying and they're beefing and moaning and complaining about how they want to be thin, but you can tell very easily in having a conversation with the person that they're just nowhere near being willing, being ready to do any of this work. So I try not to talk myself into their willingness. And when I can see they're not asking questions, I can see they're just not engaged. When I can see that they're not really interested in this, my instinct is leave them alone. Loves them gain, leave them alone. It's okay to know when to hold them, when to fold them and when to walk away. If you see that they're not engaged, leave them alone. Wait for the end of a spree or at least for a lucid interval. <clears throat> then let his family or friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. And how I phrase that is, are you willing to go to any lengths to recover? And then I hit them with a question. It's not a question that's in the book. I learned this question from an alcoholic in Eugene, Oregon. I went to, I lived in Eugene for nine years. Now they don't have OA in Eugene, Oregon. There's no such thing. They don't have it. Do you have to go to AA or you die? Those are your choices. Go to open AA or die. Now I didn't, uh, they knew my secret. Most of them knew my secret that I wasn't alcoholic, but they encouraged me to keep coming back to their meetings. And I learned an awful lot about the big book from, from guys in, in uh, Eugene, Oregon. It was quite the experience for me to go there and live there. But what he would ask is, is there anything you're not willing to do to recover? Is there anything that you're not willing to do? And you'd be amazed at some of the answers. Well, I'm not willing to go to a meeting on my birthday because on my birthday, I always have a drink or I'm not willing to do this on my daughter's wedding day because I'm going to have a drink with my new son-in-law. My... You'd be amazed at how many people will come up with things that they have been holding in their brain 
that they are not willing to do. And I say to that person, until that idea is behind you, we're, we don't have a lot to work with here. We just don't have a lot to work with here. Um, I need you to accept that you are an alcoholic if you are going to accept that you are one. It's not up to me to pronounce you that you're an alcoholic. You have to diagnose yourself, not me. And what is it you're willing to do? And when are you willing to do it? Well, I can't be abstinent because, uh, you know, the Super Bowl is coming and, you know, my birthday is coming and, you know, Arbor Day is coming or whatever, or, you know, French Independence Day, whatever it is. So that's something that I ask them point blank. Not only do I ask them, are you willing to go to any length to recover? But I ask them, is there anything you're not willing to do? Very key question. And it approaches it from a different angle. It's, it's worked well for me. You may want to jot that down. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. There's that word recovered. And we hear a lot of questions. It's the number one question asked on vision. Hey, what's the difference between recovered and recovering? The number one difference is recovering means I'm working toward a spiritual awakening and the other is recovered, which means I've had one, but I'm working toward maintaining it. You are never at a destination. You are always working, working, working toward it. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, trying to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. And that's a very big if. You remember in Bill's story, Ebby wanted to give the message to Bill, if I cared to have it, Bill says, if I cared to have it. Remember that we are not in the business of force feeding anyone this program. You have to not only do it, you have to want it, you have to need it, but it's not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. What is it? It's a program for people who do it. And what is the action that I want to see early, early, early on? I want to see them willing to go to any lengths to put the food down and keep the food down because that's about as much as they can handle at this point. They need two days of abstinence and then we can start on the doctor's opinion. Okay, if he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. And what happens too many times is we get these people in that Al-Anon dance. The sponsor is unwilling to let go of the sponsee. And a lot of times people say, well, I can't give up on him and he's wonderful or she's wonderful. You're not doing them any favors if they're not recovering and you have been trying to sponsor them for a period of time, they need to hear a different voice. So sometimes you have to ask yourself, are you endeavoring to help them for them or are you endeavoring to help them for yourself? Because at some point when a person has had several relapses, it's really time for that person to hear a different voice. And the only reason we hang on is out of fear. We're afraid to let go because we're scared of the unknown. And if I let go of this person, I'm scared about what's going to happen now. And this person is my sponsee and I don't want to give up on them. And a lot of times that's hogwash. What it is, is I want to feel like a sponsor. And here's a person that calls me every day so I can tell myself I'm a sponsor. It would be better to call some of the newcomers. It would be better to put your name out on vision. It would be better to put your name out here in this forum at the end of the meeting and maybe get somebody, get some people, you know, you know, that are willing to do this, but to continue to sponsor someone who is not recovering is to do them and yourself a disservice. And so when you've had that second and that third conversation with the person, really have one with yourself. Am I helping them? Am I helping myself? I don't think so. They need to hear a different voice. Sometimes you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And this is one of those times. 
If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. I have gotten countless emails from women and men whose spouses were out of control with the food and moms with kids. And they will email me and will I talk to this one? Or will I talk to that one? And there's a story here that I want to tell this morning. I have been to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania four or five times in my life. I've never seen the Rocky Steps. I've never seen the Liberty Bell. I've never seen the Benjamin Franklin sites that are there. I always go in and then I go out and it's like a whirlwind kind of a thing. And um, this is a time when I was doing a retreat in the Amish country of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's in uh, Lancaster, I believe, Pennsylvania. A lot of Amish there, quite beautiful. You're driving in the car and next to you is the clippity clop of a horse. It's pretty cool. Well, anyway, we were on our way and this guy says to me in the thickest New Jersey, Philadelphia accent you ever heard in your life, you gotta go visit so-and-so. I, I actually forgot the guy's name. If it comes to me, I'll blurt it out. You got to go see this guy in Philadelphia. And this guy was in the hospital. And I says, does he want us to come see him? Now, you got to remember, I didn't have my car. I'm at the mercy of this gentleman. I'm at the mercy of this guy who came to pick me up from the Philadelphia airport. I can't just autonomously go where I want to go. I don't know how to get to Lancaster, Pennsylvania from the Philadelphia airport. I wouldn't know. I would assume that the GPS could take me, but I don't think that was very perfected back then because I'm going back. I was still married at that time. I'm going back maybe 15 years, 14 years. Anyway, that's not the point is about GPS. The point of it is is I didn't want to go see this guy because he didn't want us to go see him was the gist I was getting from this guy to pick me up. And we walk into this guy's hospital room and this guy's five, 600 pounds if he's an ounce. And the swelling in his lower legs was unbelievable. I have lived in that skin. I know what that's like. I've been in that position. I know where from he is coming. I know his pain. And he sees us and he's shutting down emotionally. He does not want us to come in the room. And we came into the room and I said to the guy, I'm Harlan. Hi, it's nice to meet you. And that was about all I said to this guy because I could tell you he did not want to hear anything about OA recovery. And the other guy was doing the talking. You need to listen to this guy and this guy this and this guy that. And you need to get your act. You're going to die and blah, blah, blah. This guy's got tubes running in and out of him. He deliberately made himself crap in the bed. He deliberately moved his bowels at five, 600 pounds. He deliberately made himself crap the bed so that the nurse would have to come in and he knew that the nurse would shag us out of the room while she was changing the sheets. And I finally convinced this guy who was driving me that we needed to get to Lancaster and let's leave and let's leave this person alone. So that is the length that this man went to, to get rid of us when we had a message that seemingly, and the word seemingly is key, that he needed to hear, but he didn't want to hear it. Leave him alone. Two, three months later, I hear through the grapevine, he was dead. This disease does not care who it kills. It does not care how it kills you. All it wants is you dead. And on the way to your grave, this disease is going to make you as miserable, lonely, 
alienated, full of shame, full of guilt, full of remorse, full of fear, full of rage, full of jealousy, as it can fill you with. Because it's not enough to kill you. This disease wants to strip from you every shred of human dignity. And by getting out of ourselves as sponsors and getting in touch with the fact that we are just other bozos on the bus, we can recover. And in recovering, we can push back against the demonic disease, the ego. I learn more from my sponsees than they will ever learn from me. We do not get this program, however, by absorbing spiritual information. We get this program by transmitting spiritual information. We pass on what we have been given to the best of our ability. It is the oldest, oldest prayer, the oldest commandment, the oldest mitzvah, the oldest thing in our religion or many religions is to pass on what you've learned, to give testimony, to give witness. It says in Judaism, teach this diligently. What's this? This is what you would call the Old Testament, the Torah. Teach this diligently unto your children. And that is a commandment from generation to generation. We are just coming out of the season of Easter and we are coming out of the season of Passover. What is that all about? It's about telling the story. I don't wanna get religious here because then people are gonna get their hackles up. But the point I'm trying to make is, Bill Wilson said many times, we invented nothing new under the sun. We just took ancient teachings and applied them. That's why I'm bringing this up. I'm not telling you to be a member of any religion. I'm not telling you to believe in God. I'm not telling you what you should believe. What I'm telling you is, in sponsoring people, there is no greater enhancement to your program. You will be amazed before you're halfway through. Let's continue. You might place this book. I'm at the bottom of 90. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be over anxious for that might spoil matters. The, the fastest way to chase away anybody is to put the full court press on. You got to do this. You got to do this. This is the greatest. This is the... People are going to run from that. People are going to run from that. You're catching a pigeon in the park. I want you to, I know that sounds like a ridiculous example, but you're sitting there and you have seeds or bread or whatever the heck it is you have. Now the latest thing is you shouldn't give bread to the birds because it makes them sick. So that's, that's a whole other thing. But let's just, for the sake of this, use this example. How do you get the bird to come to you? By chasing after it, you'll never catch it. By running after it or by calling it, no. What you wanna do to get that bird to come to you is quietly, lovingly, calmly, calmly hold your bread in your hand and eventually the bird will come to you. It's the same way with this. If I started espousing excitement and this and that to the newcomer, I would chase them away. They would not know what to do with all that. They would run for the hills. Calm. Remember, it's a program of attraction, not a program of promotion. Let them come to you. Tell them what you have. Tell them how it worked for you and see if they take the next step toward you. 
Don't chase after them with a big book in your hand, yelling all kinds of slogans at them, yelling all kinds of things at them. It's not going to work. I'm at the top of 91 first full paragraph. Usually the family should not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. Not as applicable today. 99% of the time today, you are not meeting people in ways where this can apply. The way you're meeting people today is when they come in the door or they flip on the Zoom or they call into vision or they take action to come to where we are. It is not as applicable that we are actively seeking them out as we did generations ago, almost a hundred years. When your man is better, I'm in the 91, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Very important. Call on him when he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. I think that with eaters, we have such a physical discomfort that there's always that discomfort in the mind. And, and it's just a shocking thing that we are so physically uncomfortable most of the time. And yet the only way we can kill the pain of eating 500 bags of Chips Ahoy cookie is to eat 500 bags of Chips Ahoy cookies. And along comes a person with a solution. And so much of the time we resist it. We are in every step of the, in every sense of the word, the last house on the block. I would say that the average person probably spends $100,000 for their seat in Overeaters Anonymous. Think about this with me. Think about all the money that you spent on diets and pre-planned meals and self-help books. Think about all the money that you spent at the pay and ways. Now I am not knocking psychology. I am not knocking religion, nor am I knocking psychiatry. But think of the lengths that many of us have gone to to seek relief from this onslaught of this disease in therapist's office, psychiatrists, all kinds of surgeries, having our jaws wired shut, buying clothes that we never wore, joining gyms that didn't help, doing these various things, going to sanitariums, going here, doing this, doing that. It's usually around $100,000 for your seat in OA. So in every sense of the word, we are in a way, the last house on the block. And we must carry that responsibility knowing nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here because things went well for them. Respect it and treat these people accordingly. Don't, I, I see so many sponsors today and it, it bothers me. I see so many sponsors today where all they can really do is criticize the person and build them up a little bit. For God's sakes, it, when they do something right, bring it to their attention. Be a good manager of, of your sponsorship. I'm in the middle of 91. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. See if they relate to the way you eat. See if they relate to the way you think. See if they relate to the perils that you've had in your life as the result of your eating disorder. Whether you're anorexic, whether you are bulimic, whether you are the compulsive overeater to the obese side, share yourself with this person. 
And in sharing yourself with this person, hopefully they'll be able to say, yes, I'm one of those, I must have this thing. Or if they don't relate at all, you know, they don't and leave them alone. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. Let them talk. Let them talk. Take a breath. Let them talk. Watch their faces. Are they relating? Are they relating to what it is you're saying? If he wishes to talk, let him do so. That's one of the most important sentences in the book. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. Let the person tell you where they're coming from. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the point you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Don't scare them off. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. Don't turn it into a lecture. If it turn it into a conversation. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your ex escapades, get him to tell some of his. I don't have a lot of humorous stories about my eating. I know with drinking and drugging, it can be a little different. I was listening to someone just this morning, and uh, this is a young man that I happen to be honored enough to be his sponsor. And he was telling me a story about his alcoholism. And he said that one day he found himself coming out of a blackout and he was in an elevator in his underpants, no keys, no wallet, no nothing. And he was in an elevator in his underpants and he had a walk home from an office building in his underpants and uh, no keys, no wallet, no nothing. Now it didn't, it didn't occur to me that I don't have stories quite like that. My stories are very, very different. <sighs> My stories are more tragic, at least they are to me. Maybe in retrospect, um, they can be um, funny, but I don't, I don't normally see the humor. I don't know why I'm gonna tell this story, but I'm gonna tell it. I've told you in these forums that I used to eat my way to the meetings. I used to uh, pray for a Russian airstrike during the meetings and I would eat my way home. And I remember it was a Thursday night and on Thursday night at Swedish Covenant Hospital is a speaker meeting. And that speaker meeting at Swedish Covenant Hospital in Chicago on the north side, which is where I'm from, that meeting used to get 100, 150 people. Big meeting, big meeting. And I, I don't know if she's on the line. I can't, I can't scroll through here. There, there may be someone, Della, who used to go to that meeting or Phyllis, they used to go to that meeting. I don't know if they're on the line or not. I can't look. But the bottom line is, is that I went to a place where they have Chinese food. And for some reason, they forgot to pack the silverware. It was a freezing cold winter night. I mean, it was, it was, below zero it was 10 5 10 below zero and i was in the car and i'm i'm burning my fingers burning my fingers going in there and scooping chinese food and eating it with my hands like an animal and the the stuff is going all over my shirt it's going all over the, the brown heavy gravy that flour gravy is just all over my shirt and when enough of the gravy went on my shirt the steam started coming off my chest off my shirt because it was freezing cold and the gravy is hot so the steam was coming up out of my shirt and i'm tipping this container and i'm eating it and it's going all over my face and it's burning my skin it's hot, it's hot food. And it's burning me, it's going all over the car. And I'm reaching down, I'm, I'm getting fistfuls of beef off the, off the floor of my car. And I go in to Swedish Covenant Hospital and I'm washing my shirt in the sink. 
and I go up into the meeting and I smell from gravy and I smell from crapping in my pants and peeing in my pants. And my hands and my sleeve are all full of gravy. And I did the best I could to wash. I was an animal. I wasn't a human being at that moment. I was an eating animal. An eating animal. And it never occurred to me, I'm sick. It just occurred to me that I'm horrible. And what is the point of living in this world if this is the way I'm going to live? I just want to die. It never occurred to me to do what they were doing and stop it and acquiesce to the program of recovery set forth in front of me. I don't have funny stories of eating. I have tragic ones. I don't have escapades of getting drunk at the wrong time and going swimming in the fountain at the shopping center or the hotel. I don't have it. But what I have and what you have is your tragedy, your story of starving yourself, of throwing up to the point where you, you were bordering on esophageal surgery, of exercising to the point past absurdity, of using laxatives, of using all kinds of methods to purge this food out of your body. You have that experience of living that double life. You speak and understand the language of the heart. You have your experience. Maybe they're not comic. I don't know that this disease leads to comic eating. I don't think it does. Maybe it does for you. I don't know. I never had, I never looked back on all the eating I did and laughed. But you have that knowledge and that knowledge qualifies you to be a sponsor. It qualifies you to speak and understand the language of the heart. Remember the ancient Tower of Babel where everybody was speaking different languages and nobody understood anything? You understand you know what others can never know. I'm not knocking this. I'm not making fun of this. I'm not being critical of this. But I hear people from time to time tell me, oh, I'm going to start on a second career and I'm going to learn to be a drug counselor or an alcohol counselor. And I know damn well they're not drug addicts. They're not alcoholics. But now all of a sudden they want to start a new career. That's great, no problem. But how are they going to know firsthand what it's like to be drunk? How are they going to know firsthand what it's like to go into the bathroom and stick your fingers down your throat and purge up food? How are they going to know what it's like to be emasculated by this disease? How are they going to know what it's like to never ever look in a mirror and like what you see. They can't know it. Maybe they can learn things out of a book. I'm not doubting that. Please don't throw this at me at the q and I'm not knocking this. I think these people are well-intentioned and they're fantastic. Great, God bless them and keep them. But how are they gonna know what you know? You know, don't sell yourself short. Maybe you never were throwing chop suey down your throat outside Swedish Covenant Hospital in the dead of winter. Maybe you never got back in that car after the meeting and smelled the food 
and, and saw the ice that had formed and there was frozen Chinese food, frozen food on the floor of my car. And what that smelled like when it thawed out and, and, and spoiled. Maybe you'll never know that, but you have your own hell and it qualifies you to do this work. And that's the only reason that we have survived what we have survived. This disease is permanent, progressive and fatal. And the only reason that we survive is to pass on what we've learned. Our real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And how can I be of maximum service to God and the people about us? By passing on what I've learned to relieve the pain and degradation and horror and nightmarish existence of this blasted disease. There is no greater calling. The suffering. When I went to the, I went to a face-to-face -face meeting. I have a friend in from out of town, from Chicago. We went to a face-to-face -face meeting yesterday. And one of the women that was there, two or three of the women that were there, there were six of us. So there was four people besides him and I. And of the four people, I knew three of them. The three people that I knew gained a minimum of 50 pounds since the last time I saw them. Minimum. No, not, not, that's not true. One of them did not. Two of the remaining people, two, gained a minimum of 50 pounds since I've seen them. And it broke my heart. Broke my heart. The suffering. You can be instrumental in relieving it one person at a time. That's why you survive. Let's continue. Bottom of 91. So don't you stand there and tell me you can't sponsor. Did you ever tell somebody your phone number? That's teaching. Did you ever tell somebody how to get to your house? That's teaching. You can read a book and share with them what the words mean to you. Beyond that, if they want to recover, they will. If they don't want to recover, Clarence Snyder, Bill Wilson, Bill Dotson, Hank Parkhurst, and Dr. Bob could come down from heaven and sponsor them, and they're not going to recover. Bottom of 91, when he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were. Baffled means confused beyond reason. Why would anybody, why would anybody do to themselves what I did to myself? It's because I have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. I'm sick. I'm not bad. I'm sick. I'm not stupid. I'm sick. I'm not weak. I'm sick. I'm not here to get good. I'm not here. I'm here to get well. I'm broken inside. I have a mind and a body that are broken and I need help. I need God's help because Lord knows cunning, baffling, powerful, without help, it is too much for us. May you find God now. I can't do this alone. I thought I could. Everybody told me I could. They were wrong. Willpower won't fix it. Discipline won't fix it. Reading self-help books won't fix it. Going to classes on nutrition won't fix it. My God, there are people on this line, there's 142 of us now that could probably become nutritionists. Maybe some of you are, but that didn't cure your eating disorder. No. How many people here after the meeting, let me know, how many people here think celery is as calorically damaging as probably a better choice than Chips Ahoy cookies? Can we all agree on that? I sure hope so. It's rhetorical. Don't, don't raise your hand. 
But that knowledge alone doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do anything. How you finally learned that you were sick, not bad, not undisciplined, not stupid, sick, page 18. Don't go there. We're just going to keep going because we only have a few minutes. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop, the diets that you went on, the things that you did. Maybe you had your jaws wired shut. Maybe you had whatever. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. In other words, explain to the person why you take the first candy bar, why you take that first mouthful. What's going on in your brain when you do that? And that you forget very conveniently what the food does to you, but you remember what the food does for you. Kit Kats will instantly change my perception of reality. They will instantly change my perception of reality. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. There's your chapter, chapter three. It shows you very graphically that the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. And what else does it show you? In showing you that it's permanent, it shows you once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You know, these people that say, yeah, I was an alcoholic in college, but when I got out of college, I started going to church, I got married, and I'm not an alcoholic anymore. No, you don't know what an alcoholic is, Fred. I'm not going to correct you. You don't need to know, but you don't know what an alcoholic is. You did some heavy drinking in college. Yeah. You maybe smoked a little weed in college. Yeah. But you never became an alcoholic because if you had become an alcoholic, getting married and going to church wouldn't have cured you. It's not important that they know. It's only important that I know. <clears throat> if he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. We understand and we speak the language of the heart. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. Again, let him talk. Let him talk. If you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, and how do they satisfy me? They do a food history with me, either orally or in email. I want to know, what is your history around food and weight? In other words, answer this question for me. Why are you here? begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. That no matter what happens in this world, you cannot cure this by yourself. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Bill says on page seven, although I had been certainly selfish and foolish, I had been ill mentally and bodily. And where alcohol is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. Maria, I'm going to finish this paragraph. And Nancy, I'm going to finish this paragraph. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. Let him or her get curious. Let them get curious. Learn how to be a little bit of a salesperson. Sort of create a little bit of a intrigue about this book. What's in this book? You keep talking about this book and I follow the book and the book and the book. What's in the book? Then you got them. And what's the shortest distance between two people is a straight laugh. Get them laughing and you've got them. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Don't tell the person they're an alcoholic. Let them come to their own conclusion. It's a self-diagnosing disease. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can if he's not too alcoholic. But insist if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Now, before I turn this back over to Maria and then Nancy, 